This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Early May, on the Gulf of Alaska coast, there's still a lot of remnant snow around the edges of the huge, sprawling mud flat I'm on right now. A little bit of a drizzle falling. It's chilly spring here. By golly, this drizzle could turn to flurries. But life is bursting out all over the place. The moose are moving through the willows. The brown bears are coming out to start their summer. And the birds are here. Let me tell you, the birds are here. Reminds me of something that Henry David Thoreau wrote in his journal back in June of 1851. He said, I wonder that I ever get five miles on my way. The walk is so crowded with events and phenomena. Listen to this. I'll tell you what, if ever a place was crowded with events and phenomena, this has got to be such a place. What we're hearing is the massed voices of shorebirds, thousands upon thousands of them. This is the spring migration of shorebirds along the coast of Prince William Sound and on the vast delta of the Copper River on the Gulf of Alaska coast near the small town of Cordova. There's a wide bay, maybe three or four miles across. The water rippled by the kind of southerly wind that brings rain to this part of the world. And I see a big congregation of shorebirds down the way, so we're going to move in that direction. The Copper River Delta, tremendous expanse of grassy meadows, marshes, shrubby thickets, braided everywhere with creeks and streams and rivers, with oxbows and lagoons, with puddles and ponds and lakes and trickles, every form of running and standing water that you can possibly imagine. Oh, little group of shorebirds, western sandpipers, zinging past us, maybe... 500 of them, but I'm going to keep moving down because there is something really major happening. Oh my goodness, five or six or maybe 10,000 shorebirds just flung up off the tide flat. Now you can hear the very shallow water that I'm walking in. It barely covers the soles of my boots, and it's this edge of water that the shorebirds are following. Oh, there goes a bald eagle sailing out over the flats. Oh, yes, it puts up the shorebirds. Oh, my goodness. Enormous cloud of shorebirds jumps up off the flat and back and forth they go and settling back down like leaves in a storm. The eagle is going just about straight over our heads. Can you hear it? Now, all around the tide flat here, snow-covered mountains with a forest of spruce trees every direction you look and then big glaciers and considering that it's early May quite a bit of snow on the ground. Now the most important thing that explains this 
extraordinary abundance of shorebirds, massive tidal mud flats. The Copper River drains a great wilderness of mountains and glaciers. It's not an especially long river, about 300 miles, but it carries a huge amount of water. Heavy rainfall all year round, lots of snow too in the wintertime, and voluminous glacial runoff. Measured by water discharge, the Copper River is the 10th largest river in North America. So there's a heck of a lot of water coming out of there. And what is that water carrying? An enormous load of sediment. Up to a million metric tons of mud and sand per day come out of the Copper River during the summer months. Over the millennia, this has built the immense delta of the Copper River along the coast here. This vast complex of mudflats and wetlands is incredibly rich as a feeding grounds for birds that are migrating north in the spring. The Copper River Delta is possibly the most important shorebird stopover in the world. At least it ranks among the best. Now, if we lean down here and dig out a bit of this mud, we can see down in there lots of little creatures, especially visible are the little clamshells, but it's crammed with high-energy foods for birds like marine worms, small crustaceans, amphipods, copepods, and little pink clams called macoma, as well as other clams. These birds have now landed about 40 feet away from me and I'm moving very, very slowly toward them. They absolutely don't care that I'm here. I'm now about 15 feet away from the nearest birds and more of them are flying in. As I look along the edge of the tide flat, I'm sure that I'm looking at 15 to 20,000 shorebirds scattering out over the flats, running back and forth as if they're all kind of in a hurry as they skitter back and forth, busy digging down into this mud flat for food. Now, every spring, something like 5 to 7 million birds stop here along the Copper River Delta and the mud flats of Prince William Sound to feed. Over 40 species of shorebirds have been spotted here over the years. Oh, the whole thing! All these birds jump up off the tide flat on either side of me. I'm having to move almost constantly because there's a tidal drop of about 17 feet and the grade is so very low that the water is just moving. And as I look now Oh, I might have to revise my estimate of numbers. It's impossible for me to really guess how many thousand birds I'm seeing. Birds with wonderful names. For example, wandering tattler, semi-palmated plover, wimbrel, surf bird, greater yellowlegs, sanderling, long-billed dowager, bristle-thighed curlew. I love those evocative names. The most abundant ones, however are the ones that are around me right now. Two kinds, one called the Dunlin and another called Western Sandpiper. Now in most springs, somewhere between 450 and 600,000 Dunlins stop over here on their northward migration. That's a lot of birds, but up to six and a half million Western Sandpipers, virtually the entire world population of these lovely little shorebirds stops over here in the early part of May and that's what's happening right now. 
and in constant motion, the group closest to me jumps up off, back and forth, suddenly veering one direction and the other, sort of like a swarm of locusts. Holy mackerel! Now, these migrating shorebirds are doing exactly what they came for, feeding intensely during their brief stop over here. Researchers have learned that some of these migratory birds undergo significant changes in their digestive systems for this time of year as they move north. It allows them to process food very quickly and to put on fat literally overnight. That's exactly what these birds are doing. They probably weigh significantly more this morning than they did yesterday morning. Why are they doing this? They need the energy to sustain their prolonged flight and to prepare for nesting. Here comes another bunch. Several thousand, the nearest ones, maybe 20 feet away from me. And again, I'm moving very slowly out toward them. Mostly these birds are going to stay around the Copper River for one, two, three, up to six days, and then they're going to fling away northward toward their nesting grounds. The majority of the shorebirds that stop here nest in the tundra country of western and northern Alaska, some also in Arctic Canada and some in Siberia. And how well they fatten at these stopovers strongly affects how successful they're going to be at raising their young up on the nesting grounds. Now these little birds, I can't begin to tell you how dainty and endearing they are. Every one of these western sandpipers in front of me is about the size of a sparrow. They weigh less than an ounce. Delicate looking birds with a golden flat back and white belly and fairly long legs. And as they jump up and fly to the other side of me and flutter down, their little legs, about the length of my little finger maybe, so they're built to wade around in the water. And they keep themselves very close to the water's edge or in the slick, wet tide flats that are reflecting the mountains behind me. They like to have their feet in the water, these birds, and a fairly long beak that they're stitching up and down into the mud. Now the other bird that's with them are the Dunlins. Like the western sandpipers, they've got a back that's flecked golden and black and a whitish belly, except they have a very black kind of a bib down on their lower belly as if they were waterproofed by those black feathers because they're walking right belly deep in the water right now. Shorebirds are a very diverse and large family of birds that are found all over the world, everywhere from lakes in the middle of continents to islands in the middle of oceans. They love open landscapes and wet or soggy places. <laughs> Man, we got water coming every direction this morning. It's under our feet and it's coming down from a heavy, overcast sky. You'll see a lot of species of shorebirds on the Copper Delta and the adjacent coast. Each one of them is adapted to a slightly different niche. Remember I said there's been about 40 species seen here, and they've all got a different sort of job they're doing. One little bitty one, even smaller than our western sandpiper, you could probably fit two or three of them in the palm of your hand, is called the least sandpiper. Short little legs and short beak. That bird likes to feed on the high, dry mudflats up near the grass. Our little western sandpiper has somewhat longer legs and a bit longer beak, and as we're seeing, it likes to feed near the water's edge or in very shallow water. The Dunlin can move into belly-deep water, as a whole bunch of them are doing right now, 
they use their longer beak to probe a little bit deeper into the water and sediment. So even though these birds are mixed in together, they're working on a slightly different part of the environment under the mudflat here. Now one of the biggest and most spectacular of all the shorebirds is one called the long-billed curlew. Pigeon-sized, maybe even crow-sized bird, and the beak of that bird is as long as its body. It probes way down into the mudflats, usually for crabs and for crayfish. Another bird that's pretty big and has very long legs, we see it a lot in Alaska, northern Canada, is called the greater yellow legs and its sister species, the lesser yellow legs. They've got very long legs. They wade in fairly deep water, maybe six inches deep, and you'll often see them actually catching small fish like little sculpins and sticklebacks. Another one that has a different lifestyle, the sanderling. It's kind of a short-legged sprinter chases waves up and down on open ocean beaches, snatching little tiny crustaceans that are churned up by the surf. And then the northern phalarope and the red phalarope, common birds up here in the north, they spin around to create a vortex that brings their prey up to the surface of the water, and then they grab whatever the little critters are with their short beak. So dozens of shorebird species, each one has a little bit different kind of niche and a little different kind of food. As Henry David Thoreau said, the globe is richer for the variety of its inhabitants. Another big mass of birds up off the water. We had gotten to where they were all around us. I got to tell you that they're not jumping up because of me. They jumped up just there because a gull flew overhead and apparently they took that to be perhaps a hawk or something. In any case, the diversity of shorebird species requires a great variety of habitats, and each kind of shorebird needs something a little bit different to sustain its life. They need healthy habitat down to the south in their winter home, up on the summer nesting grounds in the north, and of course the same at these migratory stopovers like the Copper River Delta where we are this morning. These stopovers are kind of like stepping stones Many of the shorebirds hopscotch from one to the next during their migration. Now, for example, our little western sandpipers here, extremely abundant North American shorebird. In the wintertime, they scatter over a huge area between the east coast and the west coast of the United States, Mexico, down into Central America, even into South America. Then in the spring, almost the entire world population of western sandpipers concentrates in a few migratory stopovers like the one we're in this morning. Now their main stops are in San Francisco Bay, then up to Grays Harbor, Washington, a little further north to the Fraser River Delta, and then the Tofino Mud Flats in British Columbia, the Stikine River Delta, and finally, right here, the Copper River Delta. They put tiny transmitters on a hundred migrating western sandpipers. They did that in California and Washington, and they found that those birds averaged 12 days getting from the coast of California and Washington up here to the Copper River Delta. There's Canada geese adding a little of their voices to the morning here. Now, a lot of these shorebirds, not surprisingly, are designed for high-speed flight. They've got narrow, sharp wings, very streamlined bodies, and they're also incredibly agile. If a hawk flies over, you'll really see it. That tight flock, synchronized, veering zigzags, sudden distracting flashes of color. It's all white, then it's all dark as their bellies show, and then their backs show. 
it's hard for the hawk to separate one bird out of the mass. Oh, here they jump up right now. I'm going to say 5,000 shorebirds, some of them coming right back toward me. Anyway, animals like peregrine falcons apparently will follow migrating western sandpipers. Those predatory birds fueling their own migration by eating these little shorebirds. Western sandpipers, like our lovely little mob of friends here very close by, they've got to stop six or seven times on their way north, usually one to four days at each of their stops, resting up, loading up on food. One biologist explained it's kind of like running a marathon and then stopping and having to put on 100 pounds in three days. That's what our birds are doing here. They are definitely bulking up for the long trip ahead. All they do is eat and sleep. They're so busy eating that they lose their normal fear. That's why these birds are landing almost beside me. I've got some of them now. Oh my goodness, not more than 10 feet away. And those little beaks going up and down, stitching the mud flat like a sewing machine. Now these stopovers are really an intricately crafted chain of places that are essential to the life of the western sandpiper and they join together the southern winter and the northern summer homes of these birds. Now the greatest concentration of western sandpipers in the world, the Copper River Delta, there have been as many as two million western sandpipers estimated to stop over here in a single day. Nearly every western sandpiper in the world lands and feeds on the Copper River Delta each spring. This one place then is a linchpin for the survival and the existence of the western sandpiper. It makes these birds extremely vulnerable. Surely they've done this for hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years. But by depending so much on a single place, what can happen? Well, what if there was another Prince William Sound oil spill? Maybe high tide, maybe the wind blowing exactly the wrong direction and covering all these flats with a slick of oil could have a cataclysmic effect on the world population of this species. Now, the key to the importance of the Copper River Delta for migrating birds, massive amounts of food. These tide flats, they're like an immense semi-solid, highly nutritious soup or cake or jello or something. These western sandpipers probing the mud with their beaks. Their beaks tend to be sensitive. They can tell what's down under there. They may open their beaks a slight bit to admit a little bit of taste. They find down here tiny little clams, crustaceans, tide flat worms, some insects, insect larvae. It might just look like mud, but believe me, this place is alive underfoot. Biologists found there can be 300 worms in a single little chunk of mud flat the size of a brownie slice. Now, as I look across this broadening tide flat, every place I look is as if the entire tide flat is in motion. Birds moving back and forth, one direction and another. A little bunch of them flying past us right now, about a foot off the surface. This is the western sandpiper's last stop before they make a final long flight to their nesting grounds on the tundra from the Kuskokwim River up the west coast of Alaska to Barrow. And also some of them go across and nest on the northeastern tip of Siberia. Like most shorebirds, the western sandpiper's nest is a pretty simple thing, just a scrape on the open ground. 
the females of these birds, they need a lot of extra calcium when they're laying their eggs. Now, how do they find that out there in the tundra? A most interesting way. They look around and find the bones and teeth of lemmings that have died, and they eat those as a source of calcium. Both of the parents are going to incubate the eggs for about three weeks, and then their young, as in nearly all shorebirds, are going to be born highly developed. It's called precocial. Those little birds are going to leave the nest almost immediately. They're camouflaged so that the hawks and owls and other critters won't see them. Now, it's interestingly the male who does most of the caring for the young. He covers up those little birds if it's cold weather, and he makes sure they don't do something foolish, tries to keep them from getting nabbed by a predator. They eat entirely on their own right from the moment they're born. Now, huge flock of western sandpipers lifting up off the water in a great oval-shaped crowd jamming close together, maybe 5,000 of these birds. Coming down now closer to the water and stretching out into a long line, whoops, contracting again. They veer back and forth and swing and sway and waves running through that cloud of birds which is now bigger, what is it, maybe 10,000 birds lifting up maybe 50 feet off the water. It reminds me actually of the northern lights as they suddenly shift color and waves of color will run through those thousands of birds. Well, about 60% of the shorebird species in North America have declining populations today. Mostly these declines are attributed to the loss of wetlands that continues because of agriculture taking over land urban sprawl, other kinds of development. For example, the state of California has lost 90% of its wetlands since European settlement. Now, California is one of the places that these little birds depend on for their migration. So it's important that in California they're strongly protecting what remains there of their wetlands. The globe-spanning lifeways of many of these shorebirds make these creatures extremely vulnerable, especially their dependence on the remaining wetlands like those in California, Washington State, Oregon, British Columbia, Alaska. And then there are also subtler, invisible processes like the pollutants that are seeping into the wetlands, the marshes, the mudflats like the one we're on today. Those pollutants can have a number of effects. They can directly poison birds like these or it can empty these extraordinarily rich mudflats of the microscopic life that sustains the whole food chain of which our western sandpipers and dunlins and wimbrels and other shorebirds are a part. The Copper River Delta, where we are right now, is an excellent model for the protection of vital habitat for shorebirds and other wetland birds. It's the largest site in a system that's called the Western Hemisphere shorebird reserve system, trying to make sure that these migratory stopovers are sustained and protected. The Copper River Delta is also a designated critical habitat area by the state of Alaska, so there's another layer of protection. So there's a great effort to make sure that these Copper River flats remain as they are today as a stopover for all these birds and a place where moose and wolves and brown bears and other wildlife can thrive. That roaring sound is the wings of these birds as they burst up off the tide flat, circle back down again and right to work 
as I'm walking now really close to a little group of western sandpipers, a dunlin in here. The closest ones are about 10 feet away, paying me no attention. I can see their eyes. I can see every feather on their backs. The little circle of ripples as each one of them dips its beak. We seldom realize that birds like this little western sandpiper right in front of me may have experiences and capabilities that are utterly beyond our imaginations. There's no better example than a bird called the bar-tailed godwit. It's almost crow-sized, bright rufous belly, long legs, longish upcurved beak. The bar-tailed godwit spends its winters in New Zealand and in the southernmost coast of Australia. Then around the middle of March, they fly northward across the ocean, and about a week later, they land along the coast of China. And then away they go again to land on the western and northern coast of Alaska. That is where they're going to spend their summer nesting and raising their young out on the tundra. And then in late summer, big flocks of them gather together, fatten up, especially on clams and worms, maybe some seeds and berries as well. After they've gone through that process, their digestive organs shrink, minimize their weight, minimize their mass, because they have an incredible odyssey just ahead. Around the 1st of September, the bar-tailed godwits launch out straight down across the middle of the Pacific Ocean, more than 7,000 miles nonstop to their wintering grounds down in New Zealand and southern Australia. It takes them about a week or so. They fly at altitudes up to 15,000 feet. These birds can't float, can't catch food from the water. They don't land on any islands. Well, like other migratory shorebirds, there's another talent that the bar-tailed godwits have, and that is knowing how to predict and use weather systems. They time their departure from the breeding grounds in northern and western Alaska according to low-pressure systems moving across the North Pacific in the autumn so that they can catch the tailwinds created by those weather systems. It helps them along at higher speed. And then when they get down in the South Pacific, Hawaii, and beyond, they catch tailwinds from another direction that slingshots those birds off toward their wintering grounds in New Zealand and Australia. Imagine what hidden senses, what genius talents reside inside the minds of bar-tailed godwits, a bird that we might see and completely disregard if we knew nothing about what an extraordinary thing it does. Well, birds like our little beautiful western sandpipers and dunlins thronging around us right now, these birds weave the world together. They remind us that it's all one planet. We're all part of this one great, brilliantly beautiful, eternally mysterious Earth. As our man Henry David Thoreau wrote, what we call wildness is a civilization other than our own. Well, I might revise that a little bit and say, what we call wildness is a civilization to which we all belong. Well, oh my goodness, here they go again. A great big flight of Dunlins and little western sandpipers. A cloud of them 
bursting up suddenly from the tide flat, and I see that flashing wave of color running through that flock as it contorts and writhes above the water and now flexing down, spreading out in a long line of birds and scattering out as they come straight past me on either side, about knee-high for me. And they're landing now. Well, what a place to be. I wouldn't trade places with anybody right now. For encounters with mobs of shorebirds on the tide flats of the Copper River Delta, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company and a word of thanks to these beautiful little birds for letting us hang around with them this morning. See you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org.